Just ask the question. Adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me for the weekly roundup of the news is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Row called John T. Bennett. This week, we're going to unpack quite a bit. Speaker of the House says he may have enough votes to start a Biden impeachment inquiry over what will talk a little bit about that. George Santos is ousted by the House, and he picked up his ball and said, if you don't like me, I'm going to go home. Well, they didn't like him, and they sent him home. Also, this week, Sandra Day O'Connor has uh, passed, as has Henry Kissinger, two different people in the national spotlight you would never think of. But uh, anyway, Donald Trump is going to try to dismiss his Georgia case. Chesborough may be a witness, uh, and talk, we'll talk a little bit about false electors, but also don't forget, there's a check-in ruling, no immunity for Donald Trump, and a gag order is going to be reinstated for him, and he could be sued for inciting the riots on January 6th. And finally, Donald Trump has his pardon powers helped him out. Well, we'll take a look. All this and a lot more to unpack this week in Just Ask the Questions, Just Ask the Press. We'll be with you right after this. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with this week's weekend review of uh, everything that's important for the state of the nation including sports. Well, you can't leave that out. And we'll start this uh, wonderful show out by talking about something that John will we'll start with you. <laughs> Speaker of the House Johnson says he's got may have enough votes to start a Biden impeachment inquiry. What the hell is that all about? What are they inquiring that, that they want to impeach him over? Well, let me start with this. Hearing you say that out loud twice, the thought popped into my head. Well, does Mike Johnson have the votes to form yeah. this impeachment inquiry? Because Mike Johnson hasn't had the votes for very much since the over. <laughs> um, the one time that he did have the votes um, is when he passed a the, the two-tiered temporary spending package, mostly with Democrats. Democrats yeah. are not going to vote to start an impeachment inquiry. I mean, just the other day, uh, Speaker Johnson and Majority Leader Scalise and just about the rest of, of GOP House leadership came out in support of keeping George Santos, of voting against the motion to expel him. Johnson thought he had the votes. He came up wildly short on that one, too. They've pulled spending bills. He struggles to get the votes to pass rules to maybe pass spending bills. So does he have the votes? We can't trust um, the vote counting operation under Speaker Johnson 
Uh, ironically, Kevin McCarthy seemed to be better at counting votes. Um, <laughs> now, is new to this. We know that he's new to this, but I'm not sure he has the votes right now, but they want to look into what they call the Biden crime family. And, they, you know, all these allegations that um, especially when Joe Biden was vice president, excuse me, that he and his son Hunter and possibly his brother used his at least name to influence or and, and try to secure, and in some cases, to secure business contracts around the world. Now, an associate of Hunter Biden did testify to the committee uh, behind closed doors, of course, but we saw the transcript, which was not good for Republicans, that yes, sometimes Hunter would put the big guy, aka Vice President Joe Biden, on the phone, say at dinner or over drinks with business associates, um, but they never talked business. That Joe would say hello. He he was fond of, in a very Joe Biden moment, asking about the weather wherever Hunter happened to be. Uh, <laughs> So they House Republicans have not showed us in public that they have the evidence of any, you know, criminal or close to criminal wrongdoing or or real influence peddling. They say they have it. They've been saying this for a year and they haven't showed us. So that's what it's all about. And there are more moderate or old school veteran Republicans who are iffy about all of this. Remember, there are now 17. Cosantos was the 18th. 17 House Republicans who won districts in 2022 that Joe Biden won in 2020. Those 17 are really the ones to watch uh, because that could turn off the swing voters in those districts and Republicans. Those Republicans are the only ones who seem to realize that they are the key to keeping the majority, which is now just four seats. There'll be a special election in New York uh, to fill Santos' seat. So it's razor thin. And, and and I don't know if those moderates are really going to go for this. Um, and, and we'll just see if he puts this vote on the floor. It could be another embarrassing defeat. And that is the end of my opening filibuster. Michael, when we take a look at uh, potential, uh, I don't know, getting enough votes for an impeachment inquiry, an inquiry itself may or may not lead to a, a, an impeachment vote. But does it seem like, I mean, first of all, an impeachment is merely a political weapon. It's not it's not the same as being charged with a crime. So how threatening is it that the Republicans are threatening to inquire about whether or not they're going to impeach Joe Biden? Well, Ron DeSantis said recently that he thinks that the Republicans are making a mistake to go forward with this impeachment inquiry because nobody really cares. Yes, they think that Hunter Biden may have been trading on his father's name when his father was the vice president. Um, but Republicans should be focusing on immigration, the economy, inflation, and matters that are more important to Republican voters. And I think DeSantis is right about this. I think that the basis for the Biden inquiry seems to be centered around the time that Joe Biden was vice president Biden. And to my recollection, you impeach people for behavior <laughs> in their current office. I don't remember that you can impeach somebody for past acts uh, under undertaken, e even if even if proven. Um, so I think it's look. It's fair enough for people to look into. I've said this before. It's fair enough for people to look into the business of 
uh, children and spouses and, and collateral relatives trading on the powers that other relatives in their family have. And I think Hunter Biden is an example of that. I think that uh, Jared Kushner is an example of that. I think that Billy Carter was an example of that. Roger Clinton was an example of yeah. that. Hugh, whatever, um, Rodman, uh, Hillary Clinton's brother, was an example of that. I expect that there are examples of this from time in the the beginning of our our republic. And maybe there should be laws about that. But it doesn't strike me that there is publicly available evidence that indicates that President Biden did something to abuse the powers of his office to commit a high crime or misdemeanor or treason that would merit impeachment. Now, the Republicans have said, well, we, especially Johnson and Stefanik, said we were on the impeachment committees for Trump, and that was all political, and this is not political, but it's really hard to see that there is a dividing line between the two. As you know, I was not a big fan of the Ukraine impeachment. I thought that that was bad behavior on Trump's part, but that an impeachment was ill-considered. Um, and I think that impeachment in this case is similarly ill-considered. The question, I guess, that comes back to my mind is how useless is the impeachment process after Donald Trump? I mean, it it seems to be used uh, as frequently as some people breathe or change their underwear, and it has about as much effect on, on the body politic. Well, that's right. And um, Karun Demersian um, and Rachel Bade wrote a book called Unchecked, which is a real good read, which incidentally, I interviewed them for my podcast on a two-part um, uh, discussion. And their um, conclusion is that the Trump impeachments essentially neutered the impeachment uh, weapon, that it should have been used and properly used only when there's a likelihood of success. And that in this case, the way they went about it sort of half-heartedly undermined its utility. And so now it has become just another political weapon um, that doesn't really mean anything. When you used to say in the times of uh, Richard Nixon that he was going to be impeached, it was a nuclear statement. Yes. Now, when you say someone is going to be impeached, they say, oh, so, you know, it doesn't have the same gravitas that it once did. And that's unfortunate. And I, as I say, I think there were, the Democrats made a mistake with the Ukraine impeachment, and that sort of watered down its um, importance. I think January 6th was, was an important one and should have gone forward. And if Mitch McConnell had a spine, he um, would have voted to convict. And this nightmare that we're facing now would not be um, a reality because Trump would have been barred from running uh, for office. But in the aftermath of Ukraine impeachment and in this current Biden impeachment, um, which I think, uh, as I said, has no legal merit at the moment, um, then the impeachment tool is been um, watered down and, and rendered essentially useless, save for, you know, Nixon-like uh, overt criminal behavior.
Yeah, John, when you talk to people on the House and Congress and, you know, up on the Hill, the Senate, I, you get the feeling that they think that an impeachment these days is nothing more than a speeding ticket. Yeah, uh, excuse me, especially Senate Republicans. Um, they're not crazy about this either, because, of course, this could blow back on them and, and the Senate is up for grabs. We didn't think it was going to be up for grabs uh, this, right. this coming cycle, but Democrats are, are looking pretty competitive. And so that worries House Republicans because, um, you know, being in the minority in either chamber is a pretty lonely place. Now, um, I don't. I, I, I don't sense that those really conservatives, the Gates eight, I guess it's the Gates seven now that Santos is gone. Um, and we've talked about this here. I know, Brian, you and I have talked about it. I've talked about it with, with other colleagues. They don't seem to care about keeping the majority. And in fact, for them, the, the, the bomb throwers, um, being in the minority might be a more comfortable place. You don't have to worry about Johnson giving you a subcommittee to be a chairman of and you have to organize it and run it and, you know, at least try to pass legislation or write bills or negotiate with the Democrats on amendments. Um, you can just go on Fox News if you're in the minority, go on Newsmax, you know, go on Gates's podcast, go on um, Steve Bannon's podcast and and and, you know, throw rhetorical bombs, which, of course, helps raise money. So. That's what you hear a lot of. There's that interesting divide between Senate Republicans and House Republicans about keeping uh, the majority and, and being in the majority. Uh, Senate Republicans are warning against this, a lot of them, but there's no evidence that Johnson is listening to them. He's not listening to Mitch McConnell. So how does that have what, what effect will that have on any attempt at impeachment? I don't I don't think Senate Republicans advice giving is going to have going to have much at all. Now, <laughs> you know, some of those more moderate Republicans, but they'll listen to the Mitch McConnell's and the John Thunes and the John Cornyn's of the world. Sure. They'll listen to the Lindsey Graham's of the world. Um, he's not crazy about this either. Now, what what the House Republicans do say when you talk to them is this doesn't mean that we're going to eventually have a vote on the floor to impeach Joe Biden. They say this initial step, so this vote that could happen to formally bless this um, inquiry, is because they're not getting the documents they're requesting from Biden World and financial institutions and and everything that would be involved in these business transactions. That they they haven't been able to get the documents. Um, when you formally bless the impeachment process, the inquiry with a floor vote, they say this will unlock um, subpoena powers and the ability to demand and get those documents but what if the documents don't exist because well, yeah you know so so this could i mean this is political let's face it like you said impeachment is a political not a, a criminal matter a process so they're trying to make hay for the election they're trying to damage joe biden and help right right now what would be nominee donald trump that's what it's all about so, yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that damage. If anybody was damaged this week, wasn't it wasn't Biden? It was it would have to be Donald Trump. Uh, George Santos got ousted. One of his uh, he, he's been a big supporter of Donnie's. And at the same time, he's part of that hateful eight. Uh, and so he's gone. He's <laughs> George Santos yeah. is gone. <laughs> That's one. Yes. That and and this is a problem for Johnson. 
because this is one less vote to start to formally uh, bless the impeachment inquiry. So with Santos gone now, no one was surprised, I guess, but there were some Democrats who initially changed their, you know, who initially voted against it. I think Jamie Raskin voted against the uh, original ouster, but it passed with Democratic help last time. Michael, what's the problem with why? Why were there some people who were for or who were against ousting him the first time they took the vote, but were for it the second time? Because before was prior to the House uh, Ethics Committee uh, formal report. So you have this inquiry about him in the Ethics Committee. You've got these indictments, but you don't have any uh, resolution. And so Jamie Raskin felt that this is just a charge, like with Menendez, it's a charge and remember, Menendez was charged previously and found not guilty. guilty yeah. um, and so if he would have been forced to resign because of the charge and then found not guilty, he doesn't get his seat back. And so Raskin said, well, and others said, well, that's where we sort of are. We have a charge unproven. And so I can't vote to throw somebody out on that basis. Then the House Ethics Committee uh, issues its unanimous and scathing report about Santos's misconduct, including uh, the fleecing of a sitting member of Congress himself, who, who sent a note around saying, hey, by the way, I was a victim and my family was a victim of Santos. At that point, when you have a unanimous ethics <laughs> committee um, report, which is not all that common. Um, oftentimes out of these committees, you get, you know, sort of two sides and it's pretty uh, wishy-washy. Graskin and others said, that's that's enough for me because it doesn't require a criminal conviction because what you're doing is you're saying this person lacks the moral fabric or whatever to comport with the rules of the house. The rules of the house says you can be a member of the house, you know, under the following conditions. And they said he no longer met those conditions. And the basis for that was largely this ethics report. So you had a before the report and after the report vote. And that's what was the differentiator. John, was there any surprise that he was asked at this time? I mean, I, I understand that Matt Gates was uh, came to his defense. So, but otherwise, were you surprised at the vote? No, not at all. There did, there did seem to be some surprise from leadership, and I thought it was curious the day before the vote that uh, Steve Scalise, the majority leader who briefly ran for speaker, uh, you know, told Punchbowl in a hallway. Uh, that he was against ousting Santos, just out of the blue. And then Johnson the next morning, Mike Johnson, the speaker, uh, came out the same way uh, against expulsion. So, yeah, I think leadership um, didn't, they don't seem to have their finger on the pulse of the conference. Now, part of the problem is there are five pulses within the conference. They talk about the five families uh, within the, con the conference, and, and that's very much a thing. So, yeah, I, I think leadership thought that the tide was turning by Thursday afternoon in favor of Santos, meaning that he would be saved and he would remain uh, a member of the House, at least until the next election. 
Um, and I think they simply got it wrong. So, yeah, I think leadership was a bit surprised. I the, A, makes me question their leadership, which I already did before. But B, who the hell's the whip? I mean, my gosh, you got to whip. Yeah, you got to get a better whip. Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand his his candidacy for speaker, to be frank. Who's? Uh, but because he hasn't had a good run as whip. Yeah. Tom, Tom Emmer of Minnesota. Yeah. He, has, he hasn't counted the votes. Uh, all that well, and I don't think he's given the greatest advice up the chain, be it to McCarthy or Scalise or now Johnson. For for people who don't understand what the whip does, fill us in real quick because that's it's it's a vital role. It is, and if if you watch the the series House of Cards, the first season, the main character, um, um, Kevin Spacey, uh, Francis, sorry Francis oh. Underwood, sorry, Francis, uh. I, I love the show. How could I blank on that? Yeah. Francis Underwood was the House Democratic majority whip, and his job is to line up the votes, do the horse trading behind the scenes, make deals, and and get the votes to pass legislation. Now, you know, that series came out, what, 12 years ago when it started? Yeah. We're not in that era anymore. It, it doesn't work quite like that. But that's, that's the idea here is um, you know that so-and-so needs um, – $2.5 million over three years to finish, you know, some project in their district. So you help them secure the next part of that money. And then they vote for your X bill on something else. Yeah. They, they, they vote for something else. You know, traditionally the whip is the guy's got his finger on the pulse, right? It says, all right, here's the people that are for or against it. Here's who I can get. If we trade this, exactly. here's yeah. who I'll never get. Even if we trade this, here's who wants to date your mother. I mean, all the way down the line so that you can line up the votes for the leadership and leadership is deaf, dumb and blind without a good whip. And so, that was the, that was the brilliance of Nancy Pelosi. In, right. Um, her speakership was that, she knew how to count votes better than anybody else in the house. Mm -hmm. And she could herself, though she wasn't the whip, she was practically uh, the whip yeah. because she could whip her votes. And we saw that on Affordable Health Care Act and other major votes um, mm -hmm. that uh, she was able to whip her uh, caucus into voting it. And again, I, I, I always seem to be promoting my podcast but um <laughs> it's not it's not so much for that if people want to listen that's fine but molly ball wrote a book called pelosi which outlines how effective pelosi was in her tenure um as house speaker and it's a brilliant book and if this topic that we're discussing is of interest you can either listen to my podcast conversation with molly which is a an hour plus or so, or buy her book. It's a great, it's a great read to understand what is really, behind, how is the sausage made on the hill? Yeah, that's and, a that's a really good point, uh, Brian. How many times uh, did we hear Pelosi say, tell reporters, when we have the votes, we'll go vote? Yeah, and and and, and she knew that's so, yeah. One one so, vote they won't have though is Santos. So Republicans yeah. won't have Santos. They didn't whip this very well. They didn't see the vote coming. But so at, at, before we go to break, how does what does that mean for the Republicans? It seems to me that if you if you were surprised in leadership that George Santos was going to be ousted in a vote the next day, 
that does not portend well for your ability to a pass legislation or b even control your 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 comrades the, your side of the aisle help me out here is that wrong remember they did not they did not put a spending bill on the floor last week and the, and to your no. point about about whipping the votes and running your side of the chamber they are they are abiding hard and fast by the Hastert rule yes they still call it that yeah uh, despite Mr. Hastert's many troubles. Uh, so that that means you don't bring a bill to the floor unless it has a majority of the majority. And this is kind of the Hastert rule on steroids because they're not really bringing, they're not bringing any bills to the floor that are going to get more than one or two, you know, moderate Democrats who were in base, they flipped red districts and, you know, they're in trouble already in their reelection. So they're not bringing any of those bills. They can't pass their own spending bills. They don't have the support within their own conference, the Republicans, the moderates object for these reasons, but the conservatives object to these spending bills for other reasons. And Johnson has not been able to bridge those divides. Now, these aren't Johnson spending bills. These are Kevin McCarthy spending bills. But still, it's not it, you're not governing when you're not bringing bills to the floor that, that you can pass with your own majority. Um, the House is just kind of stuck right now. Yeah, but I mean, my point is that with Santos not being, if you can't figure out, if you're the leadership and cannot figure out that the rank and file is going to oust this guy, and it wasn't even questionable. I mean, they booted his ass, quit, and there were a lot of Republicans, a lot more than they needed, that voted with the uh, mm -hmm. the Democrats to oust uh, Santos. If you can't, I, I mean, to me, I'm just trying to get it. What does the ouster of Santos really mean? It's not just ousting of of a fraud i think it indicates that the republicans have big problems trying to pass legislation or do anything constructive going forward if they don't know what their own membership is about yeah and more importantly though my 97 year old mother who is represented by george santos is now without a congressman you know, so <laughs> and she's better off for it. And, <laughs> and she's just beside herself in case there's a pothole that just surfaces. Who's she gonna call? <laughs> Ghostbusters. That's exactly. it. <laughs> well, the office is the office is still there. It's being run by his chief of staff, and it is reporting to the house clerk, and they are in business of doing constituent services. So have your mother call well, us. Well, I mean, truth truthfully, um the his my mother is represented by or was represented by him and his that office is literally down the street from her street and over about three blocks it's a it's a funny go. thing to go yeah uh, still working. i mean to have lester wolf be your congressman for you know decades um and then have george santos just pop up it's still one of the great mysteries to me in the um failure of the press to realize given all of what we now know about santos how in the world was this not uncovered? It was by by, by the by the um, the Bay Leader by news by, yeah. by by news by by Newsday. Or well, one the, that's the one question. Of the main, one, one of the more widely read um, Long Island newspapers. To me, there's two questions that come out of this. A, it was was the leader that uh, exposed him before he was even elected, and no one picked it up. Not Newsday, not anyone. And it was it that and it, it was fully disclosed before he was ever elected. But I, so the press is to be held accountable for what we, we didn't even follow up on a local newspaper that uncovered all of his crap. But here's my question. 
if you're the Democrat running against this guy, who in the hell did your opposition right. research? Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That that person should be branded as a not to hire. Yeah, Jesus Christ. If you're doing oppo research on George Santos, you go, ah, we got nothing. I think you, you're better off getting a job at Dairy Queen. But that's that's just me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we have a lot more. So stick around. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Caramel. Michael, I want to, uh, guys, I want to jump in here with one other thing before we go to the, the obituary section is let's talk a little bit about what happened as far as bench strength in both parties this week. We had an odd debate. It was uh, George, it was uh, uh, Governor DeSantis from Florida versus Gavin Newsom. And as Gavin said during the debate, I guarantee you we're two people who won't have our our party's nomination for president next year. So why in the hell were we even, was there anything to be gathered from watching this? Was there anything newsworthy? Was there anything important? Why the hell was Gavin Newsom debating DeSantis? Anybody, Michael? Well, look, Gavin Newsom um, has aspirations and he needs to broaden his name recognition he has this little, you know, speed hump of being. Uh, they attempted to recall him because he ate dinner in Napa Valley uh, during the pandemic and wasn't wearing a, a mask. I believe was the basis for that. Um, the hypocrisy of it, but I, I think that really he is a candidate in waiting, and that should something happen. Um, to the Biden candidacy, I think Newsom is positioning himself as the go-to guy. I, I He says that he was doing this to support Biden, to show sort of the um, that DeSantis and others like him aren't aren't worthy of the of the presidency, and by debating them, he has a, a means to. Um, pull the curtain back on on their inadequacies as a as a candidate. And and maybe so. I mean, DeSantis doesn't perform very well in that environment. And and it was transparent that um I think you could have ended that sentence after he doesn't perform very well, period. But, well, but, yeah. but remember, right now the public is getting to see people like DeSantis only in these staged Republicans, Republican debates. So a debate, a real debate, um, if that was a real debate, it was a closer to a real debate. Um, Sounded like an argument, but yeah. yeah, but I mean, but it does pull a curtain back on where these people stand. And so I think there was some value to the Democrats generally in what was um, the value for DeSantis? I I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe DeSantis thinks that he can show his gravitas, that he he can 
uh, you know, be on the stage. Well, but I mean, well, I'm trying to answer Brian's question about what, 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 what would, what was the calculus? And I, the only thing that I came up with is that he was trying to, you know, show that he's a worthy, he's worthy of the presidency because look, he took on, you know, the, the, the great Gavin Newsom and came out ahead, you know, sort of, that's the only thing I can think of. Otherwise, you know, it's just, it's just. You know, it's just a show. And maybe the point is <clears throat> more eyes on you. If people are going to watch that debate, if more eyes on you is free advertising. And he can use all the, you know, free advertising he can get because he's plummeting. And so yeah. maybe when you're plummeting, you, you throw Hail Mary passes. Um, well, this one he State, threw months like ago. Appalachian State needed um, <laughs> yesterday. Um or, or, uh, or they or needed Georgia, four or five or, of them. They or needed Georgia, some today or Georgia for that matter. Or Georgia. Um, well, all right. But, but football. No, no, but the point, the point being, the point being, he he is plummeting. He he is not going to be the Republican nominee. And and out of desperation, As, you you try to you know throw him. I'm calling him Hail Mary. You just throw everything at it and and hope that something you know is a game changer i don't think this was and so they'll take a loss well but john i mean he agreed to this months ago when he was a solid number two but what what is the what what's the value for for him in in doing this i can't see any value for desantis now to michael's point i think gavin newsom is setting himself up because if something were to happen to uh, uh, to uh, the president, no one in the Republic or uh, Democratic Party, no one in the Republican Party either, but nobody in the Democratic Party is going to support Kamala Harris. She ha- would have a very difficult time uh, on a pathway to getting the nomination for, uh, you know, President Newsom would have a, a clearer path. I, I get why Gavin did it. I mean, Newsom looked presidential, deferential to the president while he was up there, put DeSantis yeah. in his place. What the hell's DeSantis doing up there? Remember, DeSantis's entire campaign and shtick and really how he's governed in Florida as governor has been about owning the libs, fighting wokeism. And Gavin Newsom has been held up by the right as this um shining example of left coast liberalism, which they treat as this boogeyman that's going to ruin uh, the American economy, the American democracy, right. and on and on and on. So that that was DeSantis's motivation for doing this debate. It fits neatly. It's very on brand. And then as we keep unpacking this, Newsom, you guys nailed it. It's name recognition. Yes, he needs to introduce himself to more of the country. But um, Newsom's, I think his real motivation for doing it was for that reason, but also to sound like a more reasonable Democrat, not how they paint him. And he did at times sound more, a lot more moderate than even his yeah. own governing record might suggest. And, and I, that was his motivation. But the true reason for it, and allow me to write in as our resident cynic and say, the true reason was Sean Hannity needed to jack up his ratings. Yeah, there you go. But here's my here's my question from it. Does it give you any indication that perhaps uh, Joe Biden might waver and may not run again? 
I, I just think, I, go on, go son. Sorry, go ahead, no, no. I was going to say, I I think the the prospect of that enhances if Trump is not the the nominee. I yeah. think that Biden thinks he can beat Trump, and um, I think that he feels that he needs to continue this fight for democracy that he claimed was the basis for his running in uh, the last presidential election. But if for some reason Trump were out of the picture and it was uh, Nikki Haley, who I still think um, is the strongest candidate the Republicans can field, especially against Biden, if it were that Trump were out of it, then there would be, I think, reason for Biden to rethink his his candidacy, because I don't think he can beat a younger generation, um, more moderate uh, sounding, though she's not very moderate, more moderate no. sounding um, uh, Republican. And this uh, pass the torch to a new generation of leadership would become a, a really a resonant, um, I think, among among voters. So I think that's the scenario where Biden has to look deeply into himself and say, look, if it's not Trump, the only person I probably can beat, um, should I stick around? John? Yeah, I think I, I I don't think it, you know, Newsom doing the 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 Fox News debate is a sign that we can all say that's it. Biden's, you know, gonna come out to the Rose Garden next Wednesday and and say he's not running, uh, like he did uh, way back in I guess that was 2015 or whenever he didn't run it. Right. Uh, and he and Obama came out to to the Rose Garden. I don't think we're going to see a repeat of that right now. Um, I think Michael nailed it. Uh, should Trump, for whatever reason, not be the the Republican nominee, Democrats will need someone who they can quickly coalesce around and and get ready for their convention, which is, uh, I believe, the first week of August. Mm-hmm. Republicans are going in July, so they would have to have somebody that that is a national name. Um, that donors are comfortable with and that enough of uh, of their voters could get comfortable with. And remember, here we go, broken record time, independent voters in those six or eight states that are going to determine the presidential election, some of them watch Fox News, some of them, maybe a lot of them, watched at least part of that debate. And that that that's really the key there. That's why you go on Fox News when you're someone like Gavin Newsom. Yeah, the uh, we're going to switch gears real quick before we go to uh, break and talk a little bit about a couple of uh, obituaries from this week. Uh, first on uh, on on tap would be Sandra Day O'Connor. She was uh, American attorney, politician, jurist, associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1981 to 2006. First woman uh, on the uh, on the Supreme Court with her passage. Michael, thoughts about her career and what it meant for the United States? Sure. Well, Sandra Day um, was a brilliant Stanford University law school student who couldn't get a job uh, grad- after graduating, I think, in the top three people at Stanford University. And um, like uh, others, other women of that generation, Sandra Day uh, sort of what's I'm just forgetting the name of the the Supreme Court justice, the woman who just died. Help me here. Ruth Ruth. Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, Yeah. just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduates top of her class. Sorry, listening audience for brain freeze there. Sandra Day and uh, Ruth Ruth Bader, neither of them could get 
work coming out of law school despite their being top of their class. And each of them had to do a circuitous route to becoming the women trailblazers that they were. Sandra Day marries and becomes Sandra Day O'Connor. Ruth Bader marries and becomes Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and both go on to uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, and and she was uh, so a trailblazer and important in that respect. She was mostly conservative, but she was an important swing vote on the court. And uh, unfortunately, she left the court early because of a medical need that she thought her husband would have. And he died very quickly. And there she was, a person who could have stayed on the court 10 or 15 more years. Um, yeah. And what a difference that would have made if she yes. stayed on the court. So you have, when you look at her, you look at her and you say, trailblazer, brilliant woman, a moderate, mostly moderate conservative, moderate slash conservative voice on the Supreme Court, who un who sadly left her job a decade or two too soon, which I think inured to the detriment of the court and, and, the, country. and, and the country. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, now, for those who don't know, it was Ronald Reagan, notorious conservative, who nominated Sandra Day O'Connor to the uh, bench. Uh, O'Connor was a proponent of abortion. Uh, there were members of the U.S. Senate Republicans uh, who, like Don Nichols of Oklahoma, Steve Sims of Idaho, Jess, Jesse Helms of North Carolina, who called the White House and urged Reagan not to nominate her, and yet he did. So she was she was a trailblazer in in many respects, even though she was conservative. John, uh, thoughts on on uh, the importance of the passing of Sandra Day O'Connor? It's just like we were talking about with you know the traditional job of a majority whip. It's a it harkens back to an era that has slipped away. You know, she as you guys were talking about, she was a a moderate. Uh, they called it the O'Connor Court for a reason. You know, she was the swing vote. Sometimes uh, we still get that. It's usually Chief Justice John Roberts now. Um, but the court, just like everything else in in our politics and, and in American life, is is a lot more uh, partisan than it was back then. I can't Maybe. imagine the Republicans nominating someone who's anti-abortion. Yeah, that's where I was going to say. Can you imagine uh, second term Donald Trump nominating someone with with her beliefs and her resume. I, no. I certainly don't see it. No, I don't either. The other passing this week, well, the notorious war criminal, we, we know him as former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, uh, passed away at 100. And uh, I had personal dealings with him over the years. The first time I ever interviewed him, he, he began the conversation with me by saying, I, of course, realize that you've read everything I've ever written. And I and I chuckled and I said, well, yeah, and I, I, of course, realize you've read everything I've ever written. And he didn't laugh at that. He was arrogant, self-righteous, brilliant, all of that. But uh, I, I think he's stained by his own hubris. I mean, he was the architect behind the, the secret ending of the Vietnam War, which didn't exist. And he was also the architect behind the secret bombing of Cambodia. That was only a secret if uh, you were a voter in the United States, but it certainly wasn't a secret to anybody who had to watch the bombs fall. He's been called uh, the, the people as detractors have said he should have been at The Hague. Uh, he should have. He was a war criminal, um, a, a more controversial figure on the U.S. Uh, uh, political landscape. I haven't seen until Donald <laughs> Trump, maybe. But you can also say that uh, they even 
they had a limited respect for him. It was John Kirby who said, love him or, or hate him. He said in the briefing room this week, he, he did influence American uh, policy for years. Uh, Michael, your thoughts on, on the passing of Henry Kissinger? Well, he's a complicated person, and you have to admire anybody who stuck around for 100 years and stayed you know, sort of in the game. Uh, I, I have to admire people who uh, do that. Um, but, you know, for me, as a formative person in the 1960s, his secret bombings that you uh, mentioned and, and his and Nixon's lies about the war uh, leading to tens of thousands of deaths um, for their purpose, their political uh, purposes, power purposes. Um, I, I can't forgive him. I, I, I know, look, there, there's, a, there's a, a person who I admire, um, Martin Indyk. And Martin Indyk um, wrote a book, not on my podcast, because the book was too, too many pages, um, called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. And Indyk, who was the former United States ambassador to Israel, it is um, a little bit more forgiving of, of Kissinger and uh, thinks he played an important role in Middle East peace. And so to that end, um, you know, I credit, I credit Indyk. Therefore, my view of, of Kissinger, I guess, is a little bit, you know, sort of not full-blown, he is a war criminal, but I can't get over the Vietnam War and the role that he and Nixon played in the, the loss of life that uh, they caused. I, yeah, wholeheartedly agree, John. Yeah, I uh, covered national security for uh, years um, before uh, covering politics. And, you know, Kissinger was held up as something of an icon in the policymaking, policymaking world in that sphere. Uh, the thing about the national security space is people have this strange I don't know, ability, I don't know if it's that, but they can be rehabilitated very quickly. I mean, look yes. at John Bolton. How many times has John Bolton come back? Kissinger was kind of like that. Or Bill Barr. Yes. I always compare him to Bill Barr. He he could right. get out of the noose so damn quick and be right there at center stage going, ta-da! It's these, these D.C. folks who have this... Um, I know how I sound when I say that as a DC folk, they have this ability to just to, to come back and back and back. Um, it, it's just this amazing, it's like a caterpillar and they, they just, they go into their cocoon and they come back and they're damaged and they say something controversial and then they write a book and, or they criticize a lot of times it's, it's this ability to come back is you criticize the sitting administration right. and the decisions they're making. And it's easy for these guys, because Kissinger was a highly intelligent man, there's no doubt about that. Um, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback from the sidelines. And when administrations make mistakes, when presidents and secretaries of defense and CIA directors get it wrong, it's usually in these global crises, they get it very wrong and people die and wars are lost. So it's easy for a Kissinger or a Barr or a Bob Gates to sound like they would have gotten it right. And, you know, I I was always troubled by that covering uh, national security and defense. And it's very frustrating. I still see it today. Um, you know, these generals and, and former officials are all over CNN and then cable news. And 
um, they got a lot wrong. And, and it's and and for some reason in that world, it's it's forgotten how wrong yeah. they got it. And, and and then you get your uh, you become a pundit and you go on TV. There you See, go. I always, I, and I'm I'm way more forgiving of the um, Stephen A. Smiths and and Cowherd and others yeah. on sports who who are I think more wrong than right. I'd love to see the data on the on the predictions of of sports um, TV radio hosts. And I, oh, yeah. I think I, I think I was listening in the gym the other day and Oregon was absolutely going to crush Washington um, was the consensus on this football TV show that I watched. And of course they were all wrong and none of them seem in any way, you know, sort of humbled by the fact that they're mostly wrong um, and they just move on. And, this, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's what you need to do in that, in that world. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the consequences are 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 less unless you're a big better, you know, and you lose a lot of money. But when you get it wrong in, as you say, John, in, in national defense matters, lives are are lost. And the thing what I think that is differentiating between Kissinger and some general who makes an honest mistake and the battle doesn't go well is that Kissinger and Nixon lied affirmatively lied yes. about yeah. what they, they were doing. Those were not honest mistakes. That was um, actual deceit. Malice aforethought. And, and that's what, for me, is the non-forgivable part of it. And Very well said. What, what, what is unforgivable for me, having lived, lived through the Vietnam War and seen my neighbors come home dead, is that his lies led to... Two thousands, if not more deaths, and that I don't think you can. That's that's a tougher thing to get away from. And bless his lies, Goddess Richard Nixon elected not once but twice. So, God bless America and God bless Henry Kissinger. But I don't know that the the world is a a, a worse place with him not around. God, you know, God rest his soul. So we're gonna take a short break, and when we come back, oh man, it's all Trump all the time. But we saved him for the last. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karen, with our weekly review of the news, Just Ask the Press. So with that in mind, let's talk about Donald Trump. Michael, uh, there's a lot to unpack. Let's let's start with um there was one thing that you meant the, the you mentioned the no immunity, the Chetkin ruling he's no immunity. Unpack that for me. Let's start there. Okay. So there were two immunity cases that fell back to back. Um there was one which you've asked me about the Chutkin one, which is the criminal January 6th case. And then there was a separate one, which I'll get to after, if that's okay, Brian, yep. 
on the civil court of appeals ruling for the District of Columbia. So the criminal case is the case that Jack Smith has brought against former President Trump, alleging that he violated three statutes by engaging in the behavior that led to the January 6th insurrection. He's not been charged with incitement of insurrection, but rather uh, interfering with the, the orderly transfer of power. He said in his court filings that he should not have to stand trial because he has immunity, that the acts that he undertook while president should be immune from prosecution. And the district court, Judge Chutkin, heard argument on that and ruled that the immunities that the president may enjoy while president do not extend to his time outside of the presidency, that the presidency does not, in her words, confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass for former presidents. And we saw this play out in the Mueller investigation. Remember in Mueller, Mueller says there may be charges worth bringing here for obstruction of justice, but because he's the sitting president and the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department says that you can't bring charges against a sitting president, my hands are tied, I can't do anything. However, once he leaves office, then if people want to look into whether or not he obstructed um, justice in respect of the my investigation, then he will be free to be investigated. Now, they haven't investigated him for that, but he is, in a, by analogy, in the same situation with January 6th. He is now a private citizen, Trump, who can be investigated for criminal acts undertaken even while president. So the court said, no, no get out of jail free pass. He's going to appeal that ruling, of course, and he's going to again argue that anything he does, it's sort of reminiscent, Brian, of the Nixon. If the president does it, it right. can't be illegal argument. He's saying, if I did it during presidency, I am immune. Now, the Supreme Court has held that presidents are immune for acts undertaken even in the outer bounds of their um, official duties if in the civil context um, the lawsuit is going to be brought. and um, But they've never ruled on it in the context of a criminal, criminal case. And it's hard to imagine, frankly, how one could conceive it of an argument which says the president engaged in criminal conduct and that was somehow within the bounds of That's his funny. official duties when he swears an oath to defend the Constitution and to take care to make sure that the laws are faithfully executed. So I think it's going nowhere um, on the criminal um, side, but but nonetheless, they're going to appeal it because, of course, there are two things at play here. One is trying to get out from under this altogether, but to delay, 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 so that the case is not brought to trial in March. So that's that's that. You want to pause and have John O'Pine yeah, go into into the civil one. John, my question for you is having looked at this, we both know this is going to make little difference with supporters of Donald Trump. 
right? I mean, short of him not being on the ballot due to the actuarial tables, I still think people would vote for him if he if that were to happen. But this is an effect of. Although, let me just just jump into. I'm sorry, John. I was saying, but remember, we we saw in the New York Times Siena poll that put Trump ahead of Biden in some key states when the question was asked. Um, if he were convicted, would that change your view? And the answers in those swing states seem to be yes, probably. So anyway, go on, John. Go ahead, John. That's the problem is the answer is yes, probably. So it's hard <laughs> yeah. what this means. It's so hard to predict because people are so focused on this perception of the economy being bad. And you know, I've said it here. I've said it elsewhere. You know, everywhere I go, and I know D.C. is different. The D.C. area is different. We're insulated a little bit here um, because the federal government and, and the job market's usually better here. But prices are still high here, uh, just like everywhere else. And restaurants are packed. The bars full. Airports are packed. You can't, you know, the line out of the restroom in the terminal is is around the corner. You know, people are flying. They're traveling. Um I waited in line to pump gas recently. So, you know, it's just this perception that the economy's bad is greater than, at least right now, all of Donald Trump's troubles. If you look at one of my favorite thing, even though I do have a little poll fatigue right now, but if you look at the voters' uh, top issues, what's most important for voters, it's, you know, the first three are are something to do with the economy and inflation and gas prices. And the Trump's troubles, you know, it's mid, mid, middle part of the list there. So right now, this isn't really affecting voters. But as I think Michael has said before here, that uh, courtrooms and trials have a way of of changing public opinion. And if yeah. that really coalesces that, wait, maybe this guy did that stuff that, well, folks like us know that he's kind of admitted he, that he, he, he just doesn't think it was illegal. Oh, wait a minute. This is real. <laughs> So, you know, it's hard to predict right now because Trump's not in court every day. You're not getting a steady stream every day that we're going to get, you know, multiple trials perhaps going on at once. So it's hard to predict. But right now, no, it's not making a huge difference. And he, as we sit here right now, Brian, and I know you don't think he's going to be on the ballot. We, I don't. We disagree on that. We disagree on that. But Donald Trump is not only competitive. He is the front runner right now to be president january 20th 2025 there you go all right so uh the second part of that michael the second part of it involves a civil lawsuit brought under what's known as the ku klux klan act of 1981 how appropriate oh, sorry the ku klux klan act of 1871 put in place, was passed in the aftermath of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments ratification in order to prevent this Ku Klux Klan and others, uh, state officials, from denying newly allowed African Americans due process rights, including the right to to vote. They were um, terrorizing Black voters, and they passed the law. And the Attorney General under Ulysses S. Grant, the first real Attorney General, prosecuted the hell out of the Ku Klux Klan, essentially completely prosecuted them out of business. And that statute, which is U.S. 42 U.S. Code 1983, says that if you interfere with someone's right to, 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 to vote, essentially, 
um, you are liable for damages. And so several um, Capitol Hill police officers and, and congressmen sued under that act, saying that they were injured as a result of the January 6th events and they want and they're suing for damages. Trump responded to that lawsuit by saying, no, 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 I'm immune. Same argument that he made before Judge Chutkin and the same argument that he's making in Georgia at the moment. I am immune. I get a get out of jail free card, essentially, for civil and criminal liability, full stop. And the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia, including one member of the three-judge panel that ruled on it, who was appointed by Trump, said, no, that what you did here um, was not acts undertaken in the outer perimeter of your authority as president, but rather this was part of your campaign as a as a politician, and therefore you were acting not in your official capacity, but in your political capacity, and as such, you do not get immunity. And so the three judge noted that he is acting as a politician. When he is acting as a politician, he is not acting in his official capacity, and he is not, therefore, entitled to immunity. And so there you have it. They, uh, in two cases, back-to-back, -back, said his immunity, get-out-of-jail-free argument, fails. As I said, the criminal case will now be appealed. The civil case may be appealed, but it was already decided by the Court of Appeals, so it would mean the Supreme Court would have to take it. And the Supreme Court has talked about this civil liability in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, and they basically said what the court here said, which is if you're acting in your political capacity, in your private capacity, if you're acting outside of the outer perimeter of your authority as an elected official, you have no immunity. And so I don't see them taking this case. I don't see the Supreme Court taking this case. Whether they want to answer the question of whether a president can ever have immunity for criminal conduct in the Chutkin case remains to be seen. But so double losses here on the immunity question. The same thing I think will result, will be the result in the Georgia case. And it, so far, Trump can't avoid um, a day of reckoning in court based on this argument that as a former president, he is free from prosecution for life. Well, I, the, the last thing I wanted to cover was the uh, Chesborough and false electors part. Can you unpack a little bit of that for us? So we know that Georgia has sued Trump criminally for RICO violations. And part of those allegations include the false electors scheme, that scheme that allowed Trump to try to retain power by sending fake electors to be certified instead of the, the Biden electors. And that's part of the Georgia case. Now we've learned that other states in which the same false electors scheme was perpetrated, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, are looking into whether or not they want to bring similar charges. And one of the defendants in the Georgia case, Chesborough, who was the author of the fake electors scheme and who has pleaded guilty and apparently agreed to cooperate 
is being summoned by those other states to come and tell them what was done in their states in order to um, promote this false electors scheme. And so you've got Georgia in the books already as a, a sitting indictment, and you've got other jurisdictions now looking into the same question. Which others? And Nevada, I think, and Arizona uh, okay. at the moment. And, and some talk about whether Wisconsin will. It depends on the state laws and whether they um, they have the authority. In Wisconsin, to do it just it. matters if the Packers win. That that'll determine it. But <laughs> uh, um, and Chesboro is um, apparently being called to the grand juries to testify about what the, the the plan was in those in those jurisdictions. And so it may be that former President Trump will face additional state charges based on the. Gen the events of January 6th. John, any surprise? <laughs> no surprises. Zero surprises uh, in either. If you're paying attention, and a lot of Americans aren't, we have to remember that, is um, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Donald Trump, you ever heard of him? They yeah. have told us that they did all of this. Their argument is he was the president of the United States, he was the head of the federal government, and he had a legal duty to look into election improprieties and potential fraud, that that was part of his job description. That's part of their argument. So I'm not surprised that this is being looked into. Um, it's also probably not legal how they went about all of this. Yes, uh, but court's, a court's <laughs> going to decide that. Uh, my reading is, you know, definitely many laws were broken here. Going back <laughs> to the immunity question is, you know, think of it when you see the president behind the blue lectern. When it's an official, he's in his official capacity. The seal of the office of the president is on the front of the lectern. When, say, for instance, Joe Biden goes to uh, South Carolina to hold a political event, uh, or Donald Trump, when he was president, goes to Iowa or or wherever to do a political event, there's no seal on the lectern. So there might be an argument for some of the official things that President Trump did or any president did when the seal was on the lectern. But when he was doing all of this stuff with the election, if there was a lectern wherever he was doing it, uh, there would have been no seal on it. So the argument for immunity seems to fall away with the seal you know think of the seal as the immunity um but no when when you're trying to look into um election fraud that everyone including some of your own white house legal staff uh is telling you did not exist then as michael said you're acting as a politician not the president of the united states that's not an official capacity he's not signing for instance an emergency a declaration for Arizona because of a drought, for instance, and they need to get some federal assistance. The the seal would be on the lectern to do that. But to call up Maricopa County and say, you know, let's find some fraud that um, my own White House counsel said doesn't exist. There's no seal on the lectern. Yeah. yeah. And, in, and in fact, Brian, to that exact point, the decision of the court, and I'll quote it, says, when a first term president opts to seek a second term, his campaign to win re-election is not an official presidential act. Right, exactly. 
Well, he would beg to differ because he's the president and he did it. It's legal. That's not what, according to the court of appeals. Yeah, that's well, well, frankly, the Supreme Court. But but even uh, if my, my at the end of the day, and look, what we can we could argue this point forever, but I'll, I'll ask everybody for final thoughts. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump, I I would maintain that it's never been tested, right? Where the presidential immunity holds on 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 these things. I don't think you're no immune. no. It's, it has been tested. In the civil context, Nixon versus it's not the criminal, right? But not, not the, the criminal. criminal. Yeah. So, right. if if he's being prosecuted or being looked at for the crimes, I don't think the presidency gives you absolute. I personally don't believe that the framers of the Constitution and the people who founded our country thought that he would have because we go back to the Age of Enlightenment, we go back to who we were fighting, right? The King of England that would right. give him despotic authority, which is something that the founders of our country abhorred, which was one of the reasons why we found the country is government of, by, and for the people. So I don't think that it, that the framers, the, the intent was ever to provide immunity, you know, blessed immunity, immunity, blessed immunity. That's and in fact, again, Brian, um, good segue, the, the court in the Chutkin case, the district court case, the criminal case said, quote, Trump's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow upon him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. I We agree. <laughs> so we'll, we'll let everybody follow up with some final thoughts. John? Yes, just this notion of, um, and we're seeing a lot of essays and op-eds and um, some of the news analysis pieces about would a Trump second term be essentially a dictatorship? And I sent you guys a very long but interesting read by Robert Kagan. He's an editor at large uh, for the Washington Post. Um, you know, he is a neoconservative, um, but he's also uh, a Trump critic. And, you know, he argues, um, you know, pretty persuasively, I think, that a second Trump term um, would would be kind of a dict a dictatorship light um and it would feature things like you know Trump prosecuting his critics and opponents for being critics and opponents not because they've necessarily broken any laws or even come close and that you know Trump would not be would not feel um would not feel like he needed to worry about the guardrails uh that are there and it would be a vengeance four years of of revenge and vengeance and, you know, Kagan makes makes a good point that Trump may even uh, try to stay in office after that four year term. And, you know, he might not care what the Supreme Court said about that. Well, how is that any different than what what his first term was like? I, I read that article and I and I was thankful for you sending it. But at, at the end of the day, I read it and go, eh, we've already been there. The first no, Trump no, term. No, no, no. Um, I you think disagree. you can. No, no. I mean. I just I, I, what I, what I guess what the difference is is that Trump in his first term at least had theoretical guardrails because he was going to run again, and so that informed the thought was that informed his behavior um, to a to a certain degree. Um, what what um, Kagan says in the first uh, sentences of the uh, of the piece are Stark says let's stop the wishful thinking and face the stark reality. There is a clear path to a dictatorship in the United States, and it's getting shorter 
every day. And so the thought is that without the the guardrails of a possible second run for the presidency, there is nothing that will stop him from doing that which he uh, intends to do, which is uh, emasculate our democracy. And to your point, Brian, he may at that point do what he tried to do in his first term, which is to stay in office uh, forever. It's a very it's a very frightening prospect. But I... so anyway, the, the, it, maybe the difference is nuanced between the first term and the second term. But I think that I think that the the thought is that we had Trump light in the in the, in the first term and the second term we're going to um, be Trump heavy. You get the who was it? Was it Sinatra who said you you ain't seen nothing yet? Or yeah, some words <laughs> some words uh, to that effect. Well, or as we say in football, we put in a heavy package. But um, that I yeah, that's, that's you, know, you know what I'm saying. That's yeah. but, but I don't. It, when it comes down to it, I. It maybe it is only a matter of nuance, but everything that you are afraid of in a Trump second presidency, I think we experienced at least partially in the first Trump presidency. Yes, par- yeah, partially. But but the key yeah. word in that sentence is what John just said. It partially. partially, and I'm so. Sure. But I don't think there's anything surprising that I. To me, the the idea of being surprised or let's get you know we've got a you know worst dreams the first sentence of that of that article to me whenever i hear or or read something like that it it seems to me that i don't think those people are truly cognizant of what happened in the first uh presidency i think they're giving him credit for stuff that i didn't see in fact i think his entire presidency that four years was stumbling into despotism he didn't understand the 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 uh, levers of power, but his intent was always to manipulate it for his own ends. And when he got his hands on those levers and he figured things out closer to the end, he, it was too late for him to do anything with it. But it was clear what he was up to. It was always clear from day one what he was up to. And and it was a grift. It was a con. And it was a manipulation. And from the day one, when he came out and lied about the size of his his, uh, uh, you know, inaugural crowd. We knew where it was headed. And if anyone seems surprised now, I, I figure that, I mean, to me, maybe it is nuanced, but it sounds to me like you've had your head under the cover for the last four or five, seven years, and you don't get it because it's the same shit. It's just going to be worse. John. Well, I, actually, right there, you you make part of Kagan's argument for him. Yeah. Saying that that Trump figured out how to use the levers of power. But as you said, it was too late to do much about it. But if he comes back, well, he knows where all the buttons are and now where everything yeah. and how to deal with the bureaucracy. And number two, and I do agree with this, uh, what, what Kagan wrote, you know, there were adults, there were serious professional people in the first Trump White House. I mean, they came and went, but as he said, he, there spit were, them out. he did, but you know, he didn't learn until the end that that he could have his own people. He he seemed to listen. Well, let's bring in Gary Cohen and let's bring in Sipinel, uh, Sip Sip uh, uh, moment. Yes, yeah, the, the White House Counsel. Yeah. So yeah. there were serious people who stopped his worst instincts. Now, now when they stopped his worst instinct, he usually fired him, like like Gary and and others, um, many many others. <laughs> General Kelly comes to mind, um, but. In a second term, I don't think Trump would be looking to hire those more establishment Republicans. No, so he would have 
uh, General Flynn and Rudy and and that bunch in there on day one. And so, you know, the executive order on immigration that Rance Priebus, the first chief of staff, might have, um, let's say, edited, um, and, and it wasn't as harsh as it could have been, will be that harsh on day one. Right. And yeah. this segues, Brian, into another article that um, John sent. I mean, John is really doing yeoman's work and keeping you and me um, educated. And that's, God knows that is not an easy task. Um, Does he owe you money, John? Is that what it is? Go ahead, Michael. I'm just, I'm not saying I'm just, I, I, I am so much smarter uh, for my uh, relationship with John and CQ roll call. Well, now I'm going to turn right into sarcasm. No, 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 no sarcasm indeed. No saying, but, but the, the point I'm, trying to get to in my rambling sort of way is that John sent an article around, which is in the in the in the Washington Post, which is Trump pardoned them and now they're helping him return to power. Yeah. And how how he abused the 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 traditional power of the pardon with his 238 uh, clemency orders. And many of those people are now working hard to get him back um, in office, and it is those types who will now fill the ranks of a, of a second Trump term. So all those guardrail types um, that were in the first administration who ultimately got thrown out in the end, he won't make the mistake of bringing those types back, but rather he'll bring the type of people like, like Sheriff Apayo, who he pardoned and is now out there um, working very hard for Trump's re-election and that's the difference that's the difference. yeah final thoughts michael for as we head into the wonderful next week well i am looking forward to the holiday season i hope to uh, spend more time with my mom uh, in her perhaps failing last days um so it'll be a sort of a bittersweet time we're uh -huh. hoping we're hoping for a miracle uh, but she's got a bad um, colon cancer diagnosis um and so it's a time of reflection and i um that's where my that's where my when i'm not talking politics with you guys or my podcast stuff um in family oh god bless i i i now how the hell do i follow that john your final thoughts michael we're all, we're all uh hoping for that miracle and our thoughts are definitely with you and your family uh, thank no, you john no that's tough yeah, how do you follow that? I'll just say that um, I'm thinking about the college football playoff, and <laughs> I'll try to follow that. Um, the the SEC is going to get screwed. You watch. By the, the time SEC, we're done with this, we'll know. The SEC did not get screwed. The ACC got screwed. Undefeated oh. Florida State left out. Alabama is in, and I don't feel too good about that. No. So, that who sounds... are the final four, John? Uh, Michigan, Washington, Texas, and Alabama. And who's your favorite to win? Wow. Michigan? Anyone but Michigan. And I am throwing my uh, my weight and my fandom behind Washington. Behind Washington. How about you, Michael? I, I, I'm an anybody but Alabama fan, so uh, I could take and I, yeah, Michigan. Sure. Yeah. Mi Michigan and Alabama are my two least favorite. Washington would be nice, but I, I have a feeling Michigan's going to be tough. Well, they've got well, everybody I, signs. They know what they're going to They know what play they're yeah. going to run. So yeah. who's who's one and who's four? Michigan is one, Alabama is four, Washington's two, Texas is three. So I guess the 
hook them horns. Michigan Alabama game is the you know probably the two top teams. I know Texas beat Alabama, but it was their first game. Is that right? Of the season, they've run the they've run the table with eleven straight wins. And while they were lucky in some sense to beat Georgia, a fumble leads to a field goal, which is the difference in in the game. Uh, they look they look pretty uh, formidable. So I think the winner of that game goes on to. to I don't think Texas beats Alabama again, and I, I have a hard time figuring out what Washington really is. Uh, Husky you know, drills. I, yeah, we're gonna I, find out. We're, gonna, we're about to find out, folks. It's coming up next. Yeah, the, right. committee couldn't, the committee couldn't resist that big TV rating, Michigan, Alabama. That'll yeah. do a big rating. I believe that game is on New Year's Eve, and I will be tuning in. There you go. And so, and my final thoughts: Hey, Michael, uh, the best to your mom and and your family. And absolutely, um, I'm I'm head I'm I am actually for the holidays headed to visit my 98 year old. Um, mother-in-law who is confined to a nursing home against her will. There's a uh, law against that. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I trust it's, it's a whole thing. So, uh, you know, my whole family and my wife's whole family, we're all getting together to see her. So that'll be, it'll be over the river and through the woods. And I hope everybody has a beautiful holiday season. We're, we've got a lot of stuff coming on when we, uh, we get back, including a year in wrap up and uh, a year looking ahead for, to uh, close out our, our uh our year here it is just ask the question it's the podcast just ask the press our weekend review of everything that's gone on in the press one of the top 30 in good podcasts so thanks uh all our listeners for for tuning in and if you have questions you can always email us for any questions that you have and we'll be happy to put them on the air so happy holidays to everyone and until we catch you next time peace love catch you next week